resident historian, his and her historian, our historian. Good morning, Glenn. G'day, Susanna. Of course, g'day, listener. Uh, a bit of Archie Roach to bring us into today's show. And um, I was going to say, this weekend, it's the, uh, the Doug Nichols Indigenous round of AFL football, which is quite fortuitous, because 50 years ago tomorrow, well, tomorrow is the 50th anniversary of Indigenous Australians being recognised properly, <laughs> at least being recognised in their own land on the census. And, um, yeah, it's as come, such, come a long way. You mean as human? As human, because um, when the Constitution was drawn up in 901, they weren't sort of included as part of the, the fabric of Australian society. Because when the, when the Waffle invaded back in 1788, it's estimated there was three quarters of a million Indigenous Australians living in Australia. And that well, that's here. just a guess, isn't well, it? Well, it's estimated. No, well, that might have been just along the east coast, around Look, Sydney. It's a guess, but because that mob has been here fifty thousand plus years. By but fifty years ago, the number of Indigenous Australians had fallen about a hundred thousand. They'd fallen like almost sevenfold over two hundred years. And um, so today, I look back at yeah, May twenty seventh, nineteen sixty seven, and um, the changes what occurred then. It's um, that day there was a referendum held, and uh, Australians came out and they voted, and the. Uh, Where's the question? Where's yes, the question? I remember it. I, know, and I remember the ads for it. It was a I question. I remember the, the vote. Yes, I do. Well, of course, I was voting at that time. You weren't, were I you? I wasn't. I was in nappies. And you were in nappies a long time. <laughs> well, I was at kindergarten still, you know. Well, and you, were, you were wearing nappies in kindergarten. Hopefully now. not. See, it all comes out, listener, doesn't it? Hopefully it really not. does. What you find out about people. Well, this, uh, this constitutional referendum back in 1967, it recognised the Indigenous Australians could be included in the census as people and also allowed the federal government to make laws for Indigenous Australians because until then it had been in the domain of state parliaments and there's some pretty barbaric processes in place. Um, I can well imagine looking well, at some of the states that we have. Look, the worst was Queensland. Oh, you, <laughs> Surprise? You, you're pulling my leg. Don't tell me Queensland had the... Worst things. I can't believe it. Strange Queensland, things happened. Home of liberty and freedom. My dear, strange things happened. Because until 1967, state governments determined if Indigenous Australians could vote in state elections, who they married. Who they married. Where they lived. What property did they own. Whether they were legal guardians of their own children. What? What pay did they receive? Could they drink alcohol? Until this referendum, state government had the power. There was no federal coverage of Indigenous Australians until the referendum in 1967. 50 Who years you ago. Could marry? That's right. Uh, I know in Queensland, that was surprisingly, they were the most backward of the states in Australia. Shock horror? No, not really. Not from Queensland. Um, Look, if any Queenslanders are listening this morning, um, I'm assuming you've got the brains not to be like a typical Queenslander. Look, no, I wouldn't say, but I've got friends in Queensland. They fled Joe Bialke. I mean, oh, yes. There was a small percentage vote of a Joe. Was it 17% of the population voted for Joe Bialke? And the way the Barons were structured, he ran the state. You know, the rural gerrymandering wasn't unusual. So let's, let's acknowledge it. So we had a, a yeah. redneck, bigger government in power. Who just ran on behalf of a small minority of people, like um, like the One Nation types you know, nowadays. Yeah, but there was, I uh, yes, I remember that there was a huge onrush of migrants fleeing, wasn't there? Yeah, but anyway, people fled there. But um, I so said until nineteen sixty-seven, the Queensland government could say to you if you're Aboriginal, no, you can't marry him. No, you can't send your kids to school there. You can't live here. Alcohol, and they'd send you to Palm Island. Palm Island looked like an. In- until the version of Madison, where it's a little the, penal colony, yeah, a little penal colony, but for Indigenous people, 
And the Queensland government can say, you're very recalcitrant, you marry that girl you shouldn't have married, off you go, I'm going to put you in Palmer Island. And this was, this was occurring in our lifetime. This was actually happened until 1967. And as I said, when the, the White Fellow invaded back in 1788, estimates... When the English came here, you Well, the, the, the European invasion. Yeah, well, I mean, there were plenty more before that. But they didn't stay. They came and went, the French, the Portuguese, the Spanish, this mob stayed. And it was estimated it was three quarters of a million Indigenous Australians here. Um, we know from 1829, Australia's deemed part of Great Britain, which meant all inhabitants, be they Indigenous or not, were deemed as British subjects. Did you say 1829? Yeah. Yeah, that's 18. 1829. That's not 1929. No, 1829. We were considered part of yeah. Great Britain. We had a status. And, you know, in the 1890s, um, Aboriginal Australians could vote in state elections. If you live in Melbourne, you're Indigenous, you could vote if you were a man. You could vote in South Australia if you're a man. If you're a man. Mm. You could vote. But it all changed after 1901 with the Constitution because you didn't exist. You, were, you didn't exist. You weren't part of the uh, the populace of Australia. It's strange, isn't it, the way it was drawn up? It really, it really, it baffles me. I can understand things about land rights and why they, why the may by the big conservative mob, well, the minority were against them because what they were looking at was possible profit in future from that land, and that's and I understand that. And I understand why people were kicked off their land so that they didn't have any claim when there's great riches in minerals, etc. there. But I don't understand this not recognising them as actually existing. Well, I'll give you two factors. Why? One is the legal fiction of Terranullius. But, I mean, you weren't here. There was no one here. So yeah. why do we recognise you if you weren't here? And secondly, there's a school of thought for a long period from the latter part of the 19th century to only about... 50 years ago, Indigenous Australians were a dying group. They're going to die off. They'll be, they'll breed, be gone. Breed them out. Yeah, that was the mindset. Social Darwinism. That was the mindset. Even you look at stuff like eugenics in the 1920s and 30s. That was, that was a big buzz in the world of science, you know. But the the, the super races, like the Aryans, would survive. Like the and the lesser races, like the, um, the native peoples, would be, would be bred out of existence. And this was the mindset. So why have the Constitution, if it's A, Ternalius, I believe it's not going to last. This is the mindset of our rulers, my dear, when they devised the constitution back in 901. So you're saying it was um, from ignorance? Um, I don't know if ignorance is the word. I'd say, yeah, look, it's, no, I'd say it was, a, it was an ideological viewpoint. An ideological viewpoint. I mean, the, the, the sun never set on the empire. And the British set themselves. They, they do everything based on ideological viewpoints, don't they? I mean, Nothing to do with the concrete realities uh, or practicalities of the world. The sun never on the empire. Britain was here forever, and this is a lesser race. We've conquered, in that our word here was Tyrannalius, and so how can we actually count them? You know, least of the Maoris, who was Waitangi young. But is it, is it, well, uh, is it, it wasn't the fiction of Tyrannalius in our Taroa. The fiction of Tyrannalius is that he's the Mabo decisions only 25 years ago. You know, it's very recent, like 50 years since the change of the constitution, 25 years since Marbo. For 200 plus years of white colonisation, the black fella <laughs> didn't exist. Was a was an outcast in her own land. They were on the, on the path, you know, um, possums and koalas and dingoes and carpet snakes. That's how badly they were treated. And again, we had the constitutional vote back in, the referendum back in 1967. And um, look, a lot of Australians voted for the change. Where's my figures? Australians... It was five million, well, six million one hundred eighty thousand voters. I'm one of them. Not everyone voted. I and did. Ninety point seven seven percent of Australians voted 
for the change. I did. So you got you got about ten percent of Australians who voted no. Now I, I don't have a state breakdown. I wonder who they. I wonder where they came from. I, I have seen state breakdowns previously. I know in Victoria the vote yes was ninety eight percent. In Victoria, well, yeah. Victoria's always been the most well progressive state in Australia and you'd from the very inception. But no vote to be highest in um, the far north and <laughs> out in the west. Those two states. Well, those those two states had the worst overt policies towards you know Indigenous Australians. I said to you, Palm Island in Queensland, and um, now people think, oh well, you know, average couldn't vote, you know, in elections before nineteen sixty seven. Since 1962, even though they weren't counted on the census, they could vote. I'm not sure how that worked, but you, you could vote, even though you weren't on the census. And state elections, every state allowed Aboriginal people to vote until... Nine, and, yeah, and the last one was Queensland, 1965. Queensland last again. Um, once again, I'm not surprised. <laughs> I'm not surprised. And we've come a long way. Something's wrong with it. I think it's too hot or something. There's something wrong. Well, something, people stop thinking up there. There's something you can tell a rook. Yeah, something. Well, there's something crook in Queensland, a rook. And you know, we've um, we've come a long way. We have come a long way. There's a lot further yet to go. A well, hell of a lot absolutely. further, as you know. But that still is a long way. It's like the ad for. Um, oh, I remember when. <clears throat> this is an aside, Glenn, and a side mm. listener, off topic, as it were. I remember back in the days of the sixties when people would talk about women would talk about something called women's liberation. And yeah. there was a cigarette ad oh, for cigarettes with um, the song, You've Come a Long Way, Baby, and showed you this woman moving into... There was all these men at a bar, and she comes swinging in in a... They're in business suit. She comes swinging in with a, a business suit, takes a seat next to them and pulls out a pack of fags. And she, You've come a long way, baby. I thought, Jesus Christ. Oh, well, it doesn't matter. Well, it's so just it, one of those... You use something... As a nation state, we've come a long way recognising our yeah, Indigenous we people. Have. But there's so much further to go. I'm looking at recent figures. Um, there's the Closing Gap Report, you know, which goes to the Federal Parliament about how Australia looks after its first people. And most areas, it's failing still. Uh, if you're Aboriginal or Torres Strait Islander, you die earlier than the rest of us. You have far worse health, educational outcomes, employment, economic outcomes. And possibly a cashless welfare card. You, around is about three percent of stolen children. Around three percent of Australians are Indigenous. Around twenty-seven percent of the prison population is Indigenous. Oh, three percent of Australians are Indigenous. Three percent and twenty-seven percent of those incarcerated are Indigenous. And these, well, that's telling, isn't these it? These are some big issues. Look at the laws now. Look at the um, Mr. Magoo's Northern Territory intervention about you know, apparently child abuse. You know, well, send the army into the camp, into the communities. Well, we're saying that was that, a lie. Absolutely. The conviction rate for child abuse in those areas hasn't increased. They've found no more perpetrators. There's been no change at all. You know? We have, um, this is a real issue here. Again, so employment, education, lifestyle, health, it's, there's big problems here. And incarceration is probably the most overt aspect of it, you know. But a huge amount of Indigenous Australians are incarcerated. So, yeah, we've passed laws, we've changed the constitution, but what, what has changed, you know? So, these things we need to consider. It's 50 years, it's 50 years tomorrow since we voted to change, and um, we have come a long way, and there's a long way to go. I'll say, I'll say. But still, it's good to see that we have stepped forward something, and I'd like to see that happening in my lifetime, that we did that, that we had the referendum, etc. 
I could still see a lot of things have gone bloody backwards since since then, not just for the Aboriginal peoples. Well, we're talking about having another referendum about the um, the constitution, the wording of a constitution, include Aboriginal in the constitution. When it was first devised in 101, as I said, with the fiction of Terranullius, plus the mindset that they were a dying race. So they weren't deemed to be citizens in their own country in the constitution. So it's sure it's a, it's a very small gesture, but it's an important gesture, you know? You've been here 60,000 years, you know, even registered on the Constitution. There's, there's some anomalies, my dear. Yes, well, I don't. I can't follow all of that. Actually, I have to watch who I'm talking to. Though I have been um, listening uh, to Johnny Harding of late. Yep. And I trust him. What did Johnny Harding say? What did Johnny Harding say? Just what I've been listening to him. Well, we'll talk about. It. He has different ideas okay. and things that should be put in it. Yes. Okay. I might hmm. get him to drop in one day and have a chat about it. Fair enough. Well, I'm even looking on the on the on the macro picture. The federal government has cut you know, five hundred thirty million dollars to come off funding indigenous programs. Five hundred thirty million dollars being well, cut. Well, we have funding. to save money, don't we? Look at those tax cuts. We we, we have to give the, the rich. Businesses. Absolutely. Well, what did your hockey call them? Leaders and loafers and lifters. I mean, five hundred thirty million dollars. I mean, how many? You got these huge issues of health, incarceration. Education, so we'll cut the funding for your programs. Like, isn't there some issues here? And nowadays, the policy for Indigenous communities is about because um, my Aboriginal friends about you know kinship and family and the closest of a community. Nowadays, no, that's that's old fashioned. We need to have more entrepreneurialism. We need more individualism in our communities. We need more you know new sort of business minded approaches. Who's telling them that? Um, the new policies from the federal government. So instead of having your family <laughs> and your clan, your kinship, we need more. Um, Individualism, with more of the free market, you know. Oh, they're a pack invested. of rabid dogs, aren't but they? But this is the mindset that's being in charge of all these processes, you know. This, this is the conservative one mainly, though. I'm not saying that Labor's got away with this; it has done much better. But this is always the conservative element, and it reminds me, it takes me back to John Howard's wheezing little, you know, mums and dads. You know, buying shares. Yeah, yeah. Well, Mums and dads. We, we all want to be entrepreneurs, don't we? We want to be investors. No. But that's the mindset. I, mean, I don't. What about you, listener? Do you need to? Do you want to be an entrepreneur? Do you want to be? Oh, you just want to be wealthy. But the mindset of contemporary capitalism is, you know, about rational choices. You make a rational choice to invest. You make a rational choice to be paid super, which invests in. In mines, you make a rational choice to, you know, bid in the market. Like the market is sort of a free-flowing, nebulous concept. And the market is a human constraint. It's not a sort of, you know, amorphous structure outside of human engagement. It's part of human, you know, creation. And the market, I mean, mm. in these communities where people shared and supported each other, that's considered old-fashioned. Old that's, that's the old days. Old-fashioned. It's 2017 now. We can't be, like, cooperatives and communal. No, it's, it's not the 70s, you mean. No, not tree huggers in the old days. Um, I heard a bloke, uh, look, I was in the car yesterday after work and I heard half the segment. A professor from a university in New York came and spoke about cooperatives yeah. and about the modern economy, Uber and these things, how you can look at um, unionising workers and having workers having a better share and these things. And the ABC presenter saying, oh, that's old-fashioned. You can't do that nowadays. It's old-fashioned. Old old like the ABC presenter was saying, that's not part of our modern world. Oh, we can't do these things. But don't forget, the ABC is a hotbed of, uh, where's it, lifts and commas and things, isn't it? Well, well, can someone please tell me which commas should I listen to? Because I've heard none of them. Oh, I've heard none either. I've heard none Still, of them. Still, 
Uh, and of course, I've had heard people say, well, strangely enough, I heard it um, in Queensland on a radio program in Queensland that 3CR stood for uh, three com- for communist what? radio. Why not? And someone so, has said it was in quite you know in good faith. It was said that. Oh, well, what did someone could... say? ABC, a bunch of communists. Oh yeah, but that was making a joke on the name. They assumed that the C in CR stood for communists. Mm, I'm thinking about the ABC. But did you see the Quadrant magazine saying about how? No. Well, there was, I heard a bit. There was so a story in there that they've been bombing the ABC studio. I mean, yeah. this is the mind of our of our leaders. The same ones who want to say no more communal stuff, no more kinship. Let's be entrepreneurs. Let's bomb the ABC. I mean, yeah, there's, a real, there's a real issue out there, and we've got to got to call it for what it is. You know. Yes, it's what it was pointed out. Recently, um, uh, by Mitchell Fairclough, you know, that he uh, said that he heard two ads side by side. One was about um, trying to stop domestic violence, or as I call it, assault and violence in the home from yeah. someone you love, and how you have to, you know, about showing respect in it. And someone, you know, and how children need to learn, you know, how to show respect, and they learn it from home, which was followed by an ad about some cooking things. About the biggest fight ever, the you know the wildest temper tantrum, and was accompanied by shouts and yells and sounds of pots banging, and the two of them right together. Um, I think it was the show that uh, the bagman calls Master Thief, the Master Cook. Yeah, something, something Master Thief because it's got yeah. that George Colin Barris, the Master Thief, the one who roughs up teenage boys. Yeah. That's got and gives food poisoning to to pages. his customers. Mm. Mm. Well, it's like you know. I, I'll pay the staff wages, you dodgy bastard, mean, George. Mean, look at these paradoxes. You have the um, Olympic events sponsored by the uh, the big junk food company with the, um, the Philip uh, Morris Arches. Yeah, Philip Morrison. Well, CUB sponsoring you know sporting events. I mean, there's some issues here. I mean, there's some real paradoxes here. The issue here is you have to make me like starting say next month. Give us a couple of. Well, give us a couple of weeks rest and make me socialist dictator of this country. Make me dictator. And I'll dictate away happily for five years. I'll yeah. have good advisors, of course. I'll fix it. I will fix them. Bloody hell will I fix them. I'll fix the roads. I'll fix the bloody price of power. Oh, now, I'll Mussolini fix fixed the lot. trains. Can you do the same? No, no, I won't do it the same that Mussolini, Mussolini did. Mussolini fixed the trains. He did fix the trains and built beautiful railway stations mm. too. But at, at the expense of the workers who built them and the people who were supposed to travel well, the on British them. the British made the trains run in India. Yes, and the British made really good trains in India. It's just the people who um, <laughs> who ride on them that uh, I'm a little leery of. If you've ever been on a train in, in India, listener, you'll know what I mean. It's challenging. I believe it's uh, fractionally better now than it was, say, 30 or 40 years ago, but only fractionally better. Well, look at the change of India in our perceptions. I mean, India, we were, they were considered um, less of an us in Australia. I suppose they were. Um, one of our major trading partners. I, I'm not sure. I've mm. never really had that. I've never known much about it, India or thought much about India, except you've got some really nice, back in the 70s, some really nice clothes mm. from India and Indian hippie-style stuff. The, but of late, of course, now that I realise that I live in Australia with a hell of a lot of people who've emigrated mm. here from India, and they drive out our trams and our trains. Yeah. They like the Work British sort them. Stations. They're really good on um, transport. They're mm. the one I've noticed. You you have a look at your tram driver, listener, and, and mm. your train driver, 
And I thought, no, I, I live with these people. They are Australians like me now. Absolutely. I came here a couple of uh, hundred years ago. These people might have come here ten, even five, some of them. But I've been so I've been watching Indian TV shows and Indian films, and I don't mean Bollywood, which of course I love because mm. I love singing and dancing. But I've been watching Indian documentaries. I've been watching um, Indian sitcoms, you know, soap shows. And Indian historical dramas, it's been a, an eye-opener for me. And if, every time I pass another Indian on the street, which I will when I leave here, hmm. I think, oh, that rich, amazing culture you have. How absolutely incredible it must be for you to come here to this bloody little backwater of Australia hmm. and see the ignorant buggers. Not that you and I are, Glenn. Not that you and I are listener. We aren't, are we? But... To live, to come here and see this but we horrible were. little we, yeah. I said to you recently, um, I was reading some Humphrey McQuain, Mr. Menzies was aghast when India achieved independence from the British. And he described Nehru, yeah. he described Nehru as a savage. Oh, yes. This was the mindset. Mr. Nehru This was the mindset of the Australian ruling class. Can you imagine it? I mean, not just for India. Look at the Chinese. They were ostracised for 200 plus years. They were the yellow peril, the red hordes. Who's our major trading (laughs) partner? yellow peril. The Chinese. Look, um, I heard Daniel Andrews apologise yesterday for the treatment of Chinese in Victorian history. In the gold rush, they were forced to land in South Australia and walk to Victoria. I I know. This is the mindset in Australia. It's a story that terrified me as a child. It terrified me as a child. Because I knew how far it was from Melbourne to Ballarat. I, I knew how long mm. it took. This is from Rope, hundreds yeah, from, of miles. I know. So the, when you look at... terrified me. You look at... It's 50 years tomorrow since we voted yes to recognise Indigenous Australians in their own country. And this is the mindset. Australia was a white person's land. Good on Daniel Andrews. Australia was a white um, land, you know. Stand for saying if that. If you were Chinese or... Uh, Indian, you're a second-rate citizen. If you're Indigenous, you didn't even count, literally. <laughs> you didn't this even the mindset, count. Because it was terra nullius. Because if you counted as living here, it couldn't be terra nullius, could it? That's true. That's true. No, no, that no. was a bloody fantastic lie, wasn't it? Oh, it, it lasted for 200 years, the legal fiction of terra nullius. No, who actually said that? Oh, I'm not sure. Look, I should do some homework and look was at it who... Was it Cook? Was it Phillips? Was it someone else? No, Cook else? was dead by that stage. Um... I really don't know. I wonder how much that person was paid. Oh, uh, King's Ransom, possibly. And maybe a medal. Uh, And what did they reward Menzies with? uh, The Order of the Royal Garter, wasn't it? And the St. Port's. The old England. It's very, I mean, we haven't had St. Port's since uh, the last uh, war against that England had against France. 1815, Waterloo was the end of it. Not even Bonaparte. It was well pre. pre It was pre Bonaparte. It was when they were just. Menzies was, was a foul man. He fought the French forever. He was a vile thing, Menzies. He was an absolutely disgusting man. He was a lickspit of the highest order. And I'm not sorry he's dead. And I, normally I would say, you know, so and so was a pretty horrible person. Still, it's not nice to see a human. He was, he was a human being and he's left the planet and he has friends and family and I'm so, sorry for them. But in the case of Menzies, I don't. Like Henry Bolte, he's a man who was a, a vile thing. He was. When he got that time, he crashed his car and yeah. his, um, his blood specimens mysteriously were transferred and Mysteriously became lost. As, as you do. That's what does when you're a wealthy former liberal politician. Isn't, wasn't there a fridge named in his honour, the Henry Bolte fridge named in his <laughs> honour in the blood samples yeah, department? Yeah, it's, it's a slab on a shelf. No, but you know that because you were working at the time at the yeah. hospital, weren't well, you? Well, look, the Henry Bolly Fridge is a famous place. Your specimens go in there and they, it's like the bl- black hole of Calcutta. They go to the ether. the Henry Bolly Fridge. <laughs> the ether, they just disappear. 
Kenny oh, and Bobby. Oh, my God. I don't know why we laugh. We he have a, to laugh sometimes. Well, if you don't so laugh, you cry. He was a Barry Crocker, Henry Boldy. He was an A-grade Barry Crocker. A shocker. A what? Oh. A shocker, Barry Crocker. Yeah. It's an old euphemism. A shocker. Can't be too old. A Barry Crocker's only my age or so. <laughs> I remember Barry Crocker when I was a kid. But as I said, 50 years tomorrow. <laughs> when you're in nappies. Well, just after nappies. Oh, 50 years tomorrow, and I just come out of nappies. We voted yes by 90, almost 99% to recognise Indigenous Australians as being citizens in their own land. After 50,000 plus years of occupancy, yeah, they weren't recognised. plus years. And we're still destroying those absolutely beautiful examples of ancient art, the oldest art in the world, yeah. on the rocks, petroglyphs, it's called. Well, remember Nuke and Bar in the early 80s? They had to go and do those drilling for oil. They didn't find anything. They destroyed sacred sites yes. to find oil. And there's no oil there. I mean, this is the mindset, you know. The God of Mammon who wants to accumulate, accumulate, and keep accumulating. That's, that's what we're, we're thriving to. Well, congratulations to, well, to myself and to everyone else who voted in that 67 referendum. And um, we, we, as you said, Glenn, we've come a long way, but we, we still have a hell of a lot more to do. Further, or actually farther, farther to go yet. Now, guess what's, guess what's coming soon? Have a guess what's coming soon, Susanna. Have a guess what's coming soon. Yeah. Is it the revolution, Glenn? Uh, unfortunately, it's been delayed. It starts with R, so you're warm. Oh. It's got an R and an O and an N in it. R and an O and an N. Oh, no. I know what you mean. Yes. It's the da, 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 the radio thing. That's the one. It starts Monday, June 5th. The listeners, if you enjoy Susanna's radio show and the rest of the great shows at 3CR, so we need you. Away. We need you to support us financially. So. It's every year it comes along, we need to raise $220,000 oh, to keep God. us going. And we've done it in the past. We do it we every have, year. And when, you, and when you look at it seriously, you think, what, 220000 big smackaroos? That's very cheap to run a radio it's station. It's only four years' wages. We but, can do it. That's a oh – gosh, Glenn. <laughs> no, but that's not much when you think to run a radio station. Broadcast like this and does all the amazing things. Three <laughs> CR does. General Hearts. But the electricity mm. that 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 we're pulling, you know, yep. the building the transmitters, the things over the place, that, um, getting the messages out to different groups with a in the small, community. tiny, bloody yes, shoestring numbers. Budget. But we do it. Mm. We are your vox populi, three CR. And whilst I'm on air, I just want to say Glenn, a big waxing fine. This I want to say a big thank you to Juliet and Titian for their great work in recording the conference last Saturday. We had the um, yes, I was going to ask you about this. We conference. had about 130 people attend. It was the Brunswick Coburg Anti Conscription Commemorative Campaign Committee. We held it last Saturday. Some great speakers like um, Dr. Jenny Grounds, Barry Jones, Stuart McIntyre, Anne Marie Jordan's, Carolyn Rasmussen. It was a great day. And a big thank you again to Juliet and Titian who taped the program which will be available on podcast down the track once a year, once it's all pieced together. So thank you, crew. So, my dear, I'm so going to go. Mm, yes. So it was good, the conference. It was a great conference. We had more people than we expected. The speakers were well appreciated. Great information. And there's more to follow. Because later this year, there's the um, Serenading Adela Street Opera. The, sorry? Serenading Adela Street Opera, Adela Pankhurst. There's oh. also the centenary of the second plebiscite on December 20. Brunswick's uh, a real hotbed of activity, isn't it? And Coburg. It's two adjacent areas. Oh, because they've joined now, haven't they? They've merged, amalgamated, assimilated. Assimil- that's a word we don't use, assimilated. That's, that's a bad <laughs> word in the past. It is a bad word. Don't laugh at my babbling. Which is why I used it. Now, listeners, I'll leave you to Susanna. But don't get ready for time to come soon. Please support 
We'll Tracy remind R. you of it next keep week keep you too. only ready left. And I will say, as I often say, chocula. Chocula. Feel like going back home Right now while the mangoes are ripe Friend, your pennies starting to blue And them blue bones starting to bite Hey mom, I can just taste your fish soup and rice I'm coming back home to you Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming in brew Heading out to Blackberry Tree now Hey, the dusty mud stuck in our head Uncle Harry got Well, she really don't care Hey mom, I can just taste your fish soup and rice I'm coming back home to you Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming and brew Lazy breeze Blowing through your mind your feet there any time The luggers are in on the springtime And the gambling house is back Banker Hill Makan will sit on But a lot of you we got both the in front And Dad, we're gonna rag a little Johnny tonight Make Orion sing with the moon Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming and brewing So I feel like going back home Right now while the garbage is ripe The jiggle tree's starting to bloom And them gears starting to bite Hey mom, I can just taste your fish soup and rice I'm coming back home to you Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming and brew Soon I'll be dreaming and brew Soon I'll be dreaming and brew
dreaming in Broome. Gee, look, if I wanted to get away somewhere, it's, it's Broome I'd like to go to. It's expensive, though. Listen, it's really expensive. I was going to visit a friend there a couple of years, two years or so ago, visit her in Broome, and, of course, I would have had, you know, the free place to stay and everything. And when I, when I looked at the cost of travel and everything, it was just cheaper to go to Europe, so I did. That's But Broome, it's just the cost of getting there that's so expensive. But it seems like a lovely place, though I'm afraid that um, all the housing costs have, you know, skyrocketed there again. What a pity. Any nice places left? Well, who knows? What we but times certainly have changed, haven't they, listener, when we think about places to live and places to move to? Because we could live anywhere. You could live anywhere you like. And so, well, I could, as long as I had a good wireless connection, good good connection, I'd, I'd be fine. I could live anywhere. In fact, I've taken to thinking of, of late that where I might like to actually move in. I have tried. I've, I've inquired about migration. I inquired about migrating um, to, to Ireland. Well, as I've said, going back to Ireland, but I don't have... You have to have a grandparent, at least one grandparent who is Irish, and I don't. Mine have been here since 1822, and, I, and um, Ireland won't take me. unless <laughs> I got money, a lot of money. And I went to Scotland because I have a lot of Scottish ancestry, and they were quite happy to take me as long as I brought a lot of money with me and, um, and paid a fair whack out on medical insurance while I was there, like their, their, their health service, which I'm happy to. But then I thought, it's pretty cold in Scotland and I'm not sure they really want to live in Ireland when they wanted to charge Stephen Fry with blasphemy for saying if there's a God, he must be a moron. And I thought, well, you know, I'm a bit dicey about that. And I looked around for places to go and truly a place that really appealed to me that looks just lovely is Rapa Nui. I think that's what it's called. I think that's how it's pronounced. Or Easter Island. Now, there's nothing on Easter Island except, you know, some places, nice places where people live. Um, then it's a nice sort of like, well, sort of like a subtropical sort of thing, but no palm trees. In fact, no trees. They don't have trees. They've got scrubby bush-like stuff. And they've got people, nice people living around there and they've got a small population. And they don't encourage people like me to um, go and live there. You can't buy land there. Uh, you can only inherit land there, so only the Easter Islanders or the Rapa Nui, whatever you call people who are from Rapa Nui, whatever you call them, uh, they're the only ones who can have the land. And I thought, well, that's fine. Maybe I can rent a corner with a, a roof over my head and a good internet connection and a couple of chooks. But the, there's difficulty about renting because they're really, you know, dicey. They have very strict rules about who they're renting to because they don't want people like us storming in they've got uh two designated spots where tourists go and have a look at the statues the easter island statues and there's some nice surf fishing or something in another spot surf fishing doesn't appeal to me but i don't mind looking at the surf breaking on the rocks but that's something to keep in mind i might try possibly a stay of a few weeks in rapa, rapa nui and see 
you know, if there's some way that I can wangle living out my days there. But what gets me is I need Medicare. As each year goes by, it becomes more imperative that I have health coverage, as all of us do, as all of us do, listener. But just how much the world has changed, and I'm thinking of moving to some small island in the middle of the bloody Pacific somewhere where no one can harass me, where I won't have to listen to Trumbull, where I won't have to listen to Hanson, where I'm not confronted by awful stuff every day. Like the other morning, listener, when we awoke to the horrific news of that attack in Manchester where at least 22 people were killed and dozens more were injured. You know, sometimes it's like, oh, again, is always reading about these, these terror attacks. It seems to be, it's not so much of the, the shock anymore. The horror is there, if not more so, but the shock wears off. Now, look, I really didn't know this Ariana Grande was all her music, since then, I've learned she has a large fan base of young girls of tweens and teens. And I see that a number of people have suggested this was a deliberate attempt to silence young women and girls enjoying themselves at a concert, um, including a woman uh, called um, uh, Christina Catarucci, who says, who, who wrote, These girls are survivors of an orchestrated attack on girls and girlhood a massive act of gender-based violence. It's a fact that women and girls are targeted on the streets, in public transport, in all public places, on their way to school and even at their work. So um, this could actually be, it's a valid point to make, regardless, of course, you know, whatever is attack on attack, but whatever the thing was, the ages of those who died there will linger on in our minds, won't it, listener? Because disproportionately, disproportionately, the targets were children, children and 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 young teens. But as hard as that is, you got to keep your heads about it. Seriously, it's when the children are hurt and things that we sort of it hits us more than <laughs> sort of old men somehow, isn't it? It's the children, but. We can't panic because panic is what these people who perpetrate these revolting things, that's what they want from us. And we've seen young people killed before. That uh, supremacist in Norway, Anders Wewick, he killed 77 uh, teenagers in Norway, remember? And in our current state of outrage, we don't... We've got to really fight not to get into righteous outrage and we have to avoid another terrorist ta- uh, trap which is reacting badly against anyone who's um, a Muslim, let's face it. it. We just really have to. What it is really, in, uh, when you look at it, it's mass male violence. Orlando, Nice, Bavaria, uh, Munich, Kabul... Um, up all the places I can't remember them all. We so we get so many of them now. But as each massacre and attack is reported, ministers and the media leap to unpick every individual attacker's motivations. Out come the snap judgments. If they're brown or black, they're terrorists. If 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 they're white, oh, they're mentally ill. But as 
there's a tax amount up that the individual profiling, you know, falls, goes into a morbid freefall, and we overlook the most basic commonality. These crimes are committed by men. In fact, almost all mass murders are committed by men. This is no coincidence. Now, don't turn off your radio, listen. <laughs> I'm not out attacking men, believe me, and uh, I'm talking about something else, but you must say that all, almost all mass murderers are committed by men. Well, I won't name these vile, violent men because I'm not giving them any recognition, but also because it's unhelpful. The real culprit is toxic masculinity. Toxic masculinity is what makes a man feel entitled to take a weapon and take other people's lives in the name of his values. Toxic masculinity enforces the idea that being a man means not just being strong, but showing that, but showing that strength. Show it. Show your manly strength. Show it through violence and fear. It means always being the one in control, always the one having power, and always the one having the dominance over others at all times, at all times and by any means. And if, you know, so this is what we also have to look at, toxic masculinity. It has its roots in the everyday. Really, you have to look, you know, no further than most of these. Um, let's have a look at some of these mass murders and you'll find that they were at some... I'm trying to find a word that's not bad. I'm trying to put it nicely. But they were perpetrators of domestic violence. Not just those killers, the ones who've been blowing up stuff, but the majority of mass murderers, of all murderers, Men who massacre in the public are the same men who butcher women privately in their own homes. The same principles of power, control, fear and violence apply. So instead of using violence to instill fear in one woman, they scale it up to instill fear across nations. These men walk among us every day, but we only pay attention to it when the violence spills onto our streets. If we want this violence to stop, we need to address the root cause. Ah, sorry, Samson, I'm not attacking men. I'm attacking toxic masculinity. And we really have to uh, sit down and have a look at our society and how this idea of that some men have this idea that having power over others, they need it, demands inequality, of course, as their world becomes more unequal it all becomes more violent. Toxic masculinity, it's hard to say that. It exists on all levels, in policing, in prisons, in immigration detention centres and in controlling all sorts of security measures. It finds its expression in racism, sexism, white supremacy, Islamophobia, xenophobia, jingoism, rape culture and capitalism. It finds expression in aggressive fear politics that divides and breeds hate. Look, we want to stop these attacks happening. We all do, but we have to start recognising male violence for what it is. We need to acknowledge that this horrible, hateful, toxic masculinity is bred amongst us every day. You have to start pulling it apart and looking at it. We really do, listener. 
But all the same, it's good that we haven't become so hardened to these atrocities as to lose our ability to be shocked and saddened by events such as those in Manchester. An attack on a concert attended, as has been said, attended by mainly little girls. Although we shouldn't make any assumptions without evidence. Of course not. We shouldn't make any assumptions. But it seems probable that this horrible crime was related to the Middle East and shambles created in the final analysis by imperialism and time to coincide with Trump's trip to the region. Trump, of course, thinks that what the Middle East needs is more weapons, US-made weapons, of course, and the US are strategic decision to take sides in what is really a sectarian religious war, similar to those in Europe in the 16th and 17th centuries. Every US president has flailed about in the Middle East, haven't they, listen, every one of them, stupid ones like W. Bush, completely cretinous ones like Trump, and intelligent ones like Obama, all of them stuck in support for Israel in energy politics and a futile attempt to use US military strength to compensate for the economic decline. None of them, none of them ever paid a personal price. That's left to people in the area and to little girls in Manchester. But one day, listen, I tell you, and I mean it, this ISIS and Daesh and ISIL, all these places, they will be will be remembered only as the failed cults, as failed cults. Because like so many other horrors that came before it, we should ensure that our children only see and only remember these these as failed cults. We want them to fail utterly in every way and that we want them to fail in their efforts to rob us of our humanity to make us turn around and scream, oh, bloody bastard, you know, bloody Muslims, something we can't do, that's what they want us to do. And if we don't do it, then they have failed. But it's our choice to make. It's our choice to make. It's um, not a very nice world there, is it, listener? But that's that's what it is. Oh, my dear, I've just got a message coming from outside. Well, well, no... Matter, gee whiz, gee whiz, listener. I never, the world in which I grew up didn't have these um, terror attacks, or maybe it did, and I just didn't know about it. I didn't have the mass communication available to me now. But still, but still, let's have a look. I'd like to have a look at something, um, something local. Well, first of all, I just want to warn you if, if you're an older person, Centrelink is doing an expanded robo debt on on you. It's um, they're just going to heat it all up. So if you're on an age pension, be prepared to get robo debt sent out to you. Oh my God, I hope you never do. Anyway, I wanted to mention Margaret Court. Do you remember Margaret Court? I can't even think what her name was before she married one of Charles Court's sons, and there's a nice bloody conservative family that you wouldn't, you know, that you'd cross the road not to meet. But Margaret Court, she was a tennis star. She was a bloody good tennis player, Margaret Court. But now she's a pastor in some bloody strange, weird church, some cult, some other cult, some Christian cult. 
but she now refuses to fly Qantas because Qantas staff policies, in that they have an advocacy written into their policies for same-sex marriage, for marriage equality. So she's just a sad woman who's embarrassed herself, but she's made other horrible, bigoted remarks over the years. You know, it's all about God, and God tells us who we're supposed to marry, which he says how we... Um, God turns his back on us when society is forced to accept laws that violates their own God-given nature. Oh, I don't know what she means by that, but I'm not very surprised that I don't understand what she means. I don't understand people in this, these churches, these Christian cults. Look, but as look, she wrote a letter to the um, edit of editor of the West Australian, and she wrote. I'm disappointed that Qantas has become an active promoter for same-sex marriage. I believe in marriage as a union between a man and a woman, as stated in the Bible. You, Qantas, leave me no option but to use other airlines for my extensive travelling. Well, OK, Margaret Court, catch other bloody airlines, you know. I don't care. Uh, why don't you catch Virgin? Oh, no, you can't catch Virgin because they actually support... Um, Marriage equality, don't, don't they? What about Tiger? Oh, no, Tiger has the same. Golly, I wonder what airlines don't have um, show policy where they accept marriage equality. Maybe there's a bus she can catch. Then again, you'd want to check the bus lines and see what, what, uh, what they say. And yes, of course, listener, I know, I know, listener, it's uh, Margaret Court's right to express her bigoted views. Of course it is. But it's also my right to say she's a stupid, ignorant, homophobic bigot. That's my because you know that it, it's this. We're not talking about nasty. We're talking about straight speech here. But there's one thing you mustn't forget here, listener. We have a tennis court, a tennis centre in Melbourne Park, and it's named after Margaret Court. Now, tennis is an inclusive game and ever more inclusive now in the 21st um, century. Do we really need to have an arena named after someone who stands so firmly against inclusiveness? Do we need to have an arena named after someone who's just a byword for bigot? Do we need it? Uh, how about... How about... Um, Yvonne Goolagong. We could have an Yvonne Goolagong Arena. Now, that, surely that's a name that tennis could be proud to have, that Melbourne could be proud to have. I reckon i get rid of that bloody name, Margaret Court. What a revolting old bloody mole she is. So, so it seems... <laughs> well, anyway, listener, there is some good news here. It's just been a sad, sad, sad week for the nation's proud opponents of marriage equality. And that, that's sort of pretty worrying in the first place because those proud opponents of marriage equality are never very happy to begin with, are they? It, because on Wednesday, the Taiwanese courts knocked down the current law defining marriages being between, between a man and a woman on the grounds that it violates constitutional guarantees of equal protection. Good on them. 
John Howard put in that law that marriage must be between a man and a woman. Yeah, John Howard. It's not like it's something entrenched into Australian law. It's something that John Howard came up with. Another one of his wonderful ideas. Oh, we're still suffering. We're still suffering from Howard. But I wonder what this means for that um, for that Tasmanian chappy, Eric Abetz. He's been holding firm about against, um, you know, marriage equality. Of course, especially since those pesky New Zealanders got all got all reasonable about civil rights and personal freedom back in twenty thirteen, didn't he? Poor old, poor old Eric, poor old Eric Abetz. He's not having a bad day. He's not having a good day at all. Remember, he has always. He's one of those people who have all those creatively silly arguments against uh, marriage equality. And one thing he did say, and I remember it clearly, he said that no Asian countries had made it legal and thus we couldn't consider such a thing here. You know, you know, since Australia's part of Asia, you know. He went on and said that the Labor Party tell us time and time again we live in the Asian century, but how many Asian countries have redefined marriage? Ah, ah. Well, there you go, Eric, picking and choosing. I'm not very sure how you can, uh, you know, you can brace these convenient regional prejudices, all right. Well, of course, Eric has a bit of a problem in that Britain and Ireland, the US, New Zealand, Canada, even South Africa have marriage equality as law of the land and zero negative consequences. And um, thus he had to pivot quickly to Asia to point that out and it didn't quite have the same elegant lunacy of Barnaby Joyce's memorable Indonesia will shun our gay cows argument but at least it enjoyed it almost an almost uh, relationship with reality ah poor poor um, poor Erica Betts he can sadly mourn the loss of Asia but still he has other great arguments to rely upon. You know, there's still the uh, his argument, people won't assume I'm heterosexual even though I'm married, or the ever-popular what-about-the-children argument, which admittedly um, rests upon ignoring the fact that not all married people have children, that not all children are born to married people. There are already many families with the same-sex parents in any case, and they must all be getting sick to death are being talked about as though they don't exist. And, of course, it's pretty pathetic that yet another country has lapped, up, lapped us on this matter, even as Ebetz bleats about how our freedom is under constant and unceasing threat by, um, by who, Merrick? By people wanting the freedom to marry. Maybe they're using up our stockpile of freedom, which Abetz needs to attack the insidious scourge of scary, colourful colourful flags and what do you mean by scary colourful flags you ask Erica Betts saw that bureaucrats from the Department of Finance had stuck a rainbow flag in the foyer of the finance building oh my god in a government building a rainbow flag in a government building can you imagine poor chap that's uh Poor Eric, he really passed out that one, didn't he? Oh, it's a, as I said, it's a sad, sad day for Eric.
be a sad, sad day for us all. It really is. And look, Lister, one last thing I wanted to say, which concerns me a bit, it really does, and I don't want to sound like some people that go into, you know, conspiracy theories, because I'm not, but it does frighten me a bit and makes me think sometimes, why do we have disasters and horrible things that occur just before elections and just before elections when it looks like conservatives will lose disasters just occurred. Look, surely it must be a coincidence because if it's not, if it's not, well then this is a pretty bloody scary revolting world we live in, like something out of some science fiction dystopian novel. And seriously, I'm better off in Rapa Nui than sitting around listening to it anymore and being part of it. But anyway, listener, it's getting time for me to go. And no, you did notice, of course, you you would have noticed uh, that the bagman wasn't here this morning. It's because he's still in his cave in Greece. Yes, he's in a cave. Yes, it's a cave. It's all right. I have photographs to prove it, and he'll, I'm sure he'll, he'll bring them in when he returns and hold them up to the microphone so that you can see them. But, but he will be back, and Irene is not in a cave. Irene Bolger this morning. You may have noticed she wasn't here either. I mean, she's not in a cave either, but she is uh, in court giving some assistance to people, which is, after all, her job. But anyway, listener, I'm going to um, I'm going to leave you and I'm going to go out in the same old way with... Dare to struggle. Dare to win. If you don't fight... You lose. Good morning from Left After Breakfast and thank you, Chris Gaffney. Going back home Right now while the mangoes are ripe Friend, your pennies starting to blue And them blue bones starting to bite Hey mom, I can just taste your fish soup and rice I'm coming back home to you Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming in brew Heading out to Blackberry Tree now Hey, the dusty mud stuck in our head Uncle Harry got a Honey fell well, she really don't care Hey mom, I can just taste your fish soup and rice I'm coming back home to you Connect the pace of the city life Soon I'll be dreaming and brew Lazy breeze Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another edition of Keep Left, the program.